0: delighted to be joined today on this episode of The Heart Podcast by Dr. Devarka Pereira, who is a consultant cardiologist from Guy's and St. Thomas' Hospital, and also a reader in cardiovascular medicine at King's College, London. Divarka, many thanks for joining me today on the podcast.
1: James, thank you. It's a
0: pleasure. I was particularly interested uh, to talk to you about an article which we've just published in Heart, uh, in the Education in Heart section of the journal. And it's an article uh, relating to heart failure. And the title is Ischemic Cardiomyopathy, Pathophysiology Assessment and the Role of Revascularization. And I just wondered if I could start off, Devaka, by getting you to explain to the audience what exactly we mean by Ischemic cardiomyopathy, and then perhaps moving on in, to explain some of the terms like stunning, uh, hibernation, and viability, because I know certainly in my mind uh, those haven't always been uh, clearly defined. What do we mean by ischemic
1: cardiomyopathy, first of all? So, ischemic cardiomyopathy, the broadest and most commonly used definition, is heart failure or left ventricular dysfunction specifically in the presence of extensive coronary artery disease and you know this term has been debated it's the use of the term cardiomyopathy to describe an LV dysfunction syndrome where it's due to coronary artery disease is debated by the purists who think that the term cardiomyopathy should be reserved for conditions that affect the myocyte as a primary process uh, and not where the myocyte dysfunction is secondary to coronary artery disease but that sort of semantic discussion aside, mm. the broadly accepted definition of ischemic cardiomyopathy is left ventricular dysfunction due to coronary artery disease.
0: Okay. And in the main, for the purposes of this discussion, I guess we're talking about people who do not manifest with either an acute coronary syndrome or stable angina. Would that, would that be fair to say?
1: That, that's right. I mean, they may have at some point in the past, Suffered a myocardial infarction. Yeah. Maybe known that they've got coronary artery disease because they may have had angina in the past. But that sort of acuity of presentation or the type of symptom isn't necessarily a part of the, the definition. As I said, it's a very broad definition where you try and pin down the etiology of, of LV dysfunction. Yeah. Uh, and in, in this case, it's coronary artery disease. And it's probably worth mentioning that. If you look at real-world registries or, you know, randomized controlled trials, this accounts for two-thirds of all patients who have heart failure. So it's, an, it's the commonest cause of heart failure worldwide. Yeah, I see.
0: And in terms of managing these patients, uh, of course, uh, the audience will be aware of standard heart failure treatments and the increasing use of of devices to manage heart failure, but revascularization and the role of revascularization, if any, uh, has been hotly debated you know, over the last few years, and there have been some some trials which have tested uh, some of the hypotheses relating to revascularization in this kind of cardiomyopathy. Do you think you could maybe talk for a little while about the literature landscape and the trial landscape uh, yeah, as of, it
1: stands? Of course. If you don't mind, uh, James, I'll go back to when all of this perhaps started. It's when
0: Please please
1: do, yeah, go ahead. When Ryan Tula and others, with whom the term hibernation is is very closely associated, when they observed that a certain cohort of patients who have very poor left ventricles and coronary artery disease, that those patients after bypass surgery actually have dramatic recovery of left ventricular function. Uh, And that was actually how hibernation was first defined as someone who following revascularization improves, uh, has an improvement in left ventricular function.
0: I see. So, so, so it's a kind of post hoc almost diagnosis because you, need, you, you need to, test, um, you need to test revascularization to make it. Okay.
1: Exactly. And you know, people have tried to come up with means of predicting those patients who, who uh, are likely to eventually have hibernating myocardium. And so the concept of viability Was introduced to allow people to to use this in a in a predictive fashion. So viability is, if you like, the prospective equivalent of hibernation. Um, Right. And but you know, in clinical practice, it's common to talk about a patient who has hibernating myocardium, um, and that's based on the assumption that they will will improve following revascularization.
0: I see. And just to round off in terms of the terminology, what what do we generally mean by stunning of the
1: myocardium? So stunning of the myocardium refers to transient left ventricular dysfunction that occurs after an episode of intense ischemia. I see. Um, And that that process can reverse over anything from a few days to several weeks. Um, But repetitive stunning because of repetitive episodes of ischemia, can be the substrate for, for hibernation. I see. Uh, and in that passage from stunning and repeated episodes of stunning to hibernation also brings us to an important aspect of hibernation, which is not, not semantics and, and, and the definition, which is also important to understand, but the, the underlying etiological process Mm. that hibernation is an adaptation to ischemia rather than a consequence of ischemia so stunning is a consequence of ischemia okay and when the heart is repetitively stunned it adapts and it adapts by down regulating its contractile functions and in doing so the, the heart becomes able to survive, or that part of the myocardium is able to survive at a lower energy consumption level until such time that it might receive a better energy supply and it will wake up. So hibernation is an adaptive process, right. which stunning is a consequence of ischemia.
0: I see. And in terms of detecting uh, hibernating and viable myocardium, in your article you elegantly outlined the various uh, modalities uh, that we can use including uh, including MRI, uh, stress echo, debutamine echo and, uh, and finally PET. Would you say that uh, all of these have pros and cons and often it's dependent on the uh, abilities of the local unit to decide which is the best modality to use or do you tend to have a favored one yourself?
1: Um, no, I think you're, you're absolutely right. It boils down to whatever modality you have easy access to and that your institution uses most often Mm. because any given modality will have different utility and will be read and used differently across different institutions. So they they look at different aspects of your hibernating myocyte, Mm. which is essentially one that is alive and therefore has demonstrable metabolism associated with it but isn't functioning as a normal myocyte. It's staying alive as a cell, but not contracting as a myocyte. You can use any of those features to try and detect hibernation. So the purest way is to demonstrate that there is metabolic activity, but no contraction. And PET scanning is what what gives us both those bits of information. I see. Uh, And if you have an area that's metabolically active, but isn't contracting, that's hibernating myocardium as opposed to non-contracting but metabolically in- inactive segments, which are scarred segments. Yeah. Of course, the normal segments will be both active and contractile. I see. Uh, and PET scanning perhaps is considered the gold standard, but it's not widely available. It involves exposure to radiation. And MRI is fast becoming the most widely used means of assessing viability because actually in one study, there are several different aspects of the hibernating myocardium that, that are assessed. One is scar imaging uh-huh. and it's simply a matter of working out what proportion of the thickness of your ventricular wall has been replaced by scar. Yes, uh, And we know that the greater that proportion, the lower the likelihood of subsequent recovery. Um, broadly, if you've got less than 25% of the thickness replaced by scar, there's a good chance that recovery will happen. If there's greater than 75%, there's a very low chance that it will happen. And that area in between is a is a slight grey zone where you can't predict with good accuracy whether that segment will improve or not. Oh, I see. But, but what can be done during an MRI is also to look at contractile reserve. Because even these hibernating myocytes, which have, if you like, adapted to not contract in its, in its normal form, can be stimulated to do so with excessive amounts of catecholamine stimulation. So if you give them dobutamine, which acts in the same way that it would in, in, in normal um, life, if you like, a yeah. catecholamine-driven increase in contraction, if you've got segments that are alive and have that contractile reserve, that reserve can be exposed by doing giving a stimulus such as dobutamine. So in one investigation, MRI gives a scar and contractile reserve information. And by coupling those two, the, the a- accuracy at predicting whether a particular segment might recover or not is hugely increased. So that is perhaps my preferred method. Okay. Uh, but there are patients who can't have MRI scans. If yeah, you exactly. CRT, if you have a CRT device, which is a standard heart failure treatment, yeah. you can have an MRI scan. So there are lots of patients who can't. And in those cases, you might decide to do a dobutamine stress echocardiogram or a a nuclear medicine study. So you you choose your modality to your patient and based on what you've got available to you. Okay, and just perhaps to
0: finish off in the last uh, couple of minutes, do you want to outline the Elephant in the Room trial, I guess, is the STITCH trial here, uh, which was, well, maybe you can tell the audience exactly what it was designed to do and the areas in which uh, we're still left with uh, knowledge gaps and then perhaps we can talk briefly about the trial that you're the PI for, the uh, revived b II study, which is uh, currently recruiting around the UK. But first of all, the STITCH study. What was the headline result from the STITCH study?
1: I mean, the hypothesis of STITCH was that, that they would be able to show in a randomized trial what people had assumed and based their practice on anecdote, that revascularization would improve mortality, in and this was surgical revascularization, we should say, Surgi- isn't it? That's right. Surgical yeah. revascularization. Choreotrope bypass surgery would improve mortality in patients who had significant left ventricular dysfunction. And the headline result was, firstly, that mortality is pretty high in this cohort. Mm. It approached 50% at five years. Now, that's in the medically treated group. That's so amazingly high, isn't it? It's amazingly high. These are our mortality rates that we're used to thinking of in relation to to oncology trials right it, it, that goes to show that um, while there've been major advances in heart failure treatment this is still a real health problem for us that half the patients that you you might start to treat will have died in in five five years and this is optimal treatment within
0: a clinical trial so it's even this is, this yeah. is
1: about the most contemporary randomized trial of heart failure that's been been uh, published of, of late. But bypass surgery did nothing to, to change that mortality rate. Okay. And, and interestingly, actually, if you look closely at the effect of bypass surgery on mortality, early on in the first 30 days, there's an excess of mortality in, in the patients who have bypass surgery compared to those who carry on with, with best medical therapy alone. Okay. Then over time, there's a, a catch-up phenomenon and perhaps those who survive seem to manifest benefit very late on. And that's really what's led us to to consider the revived BCS2 trial, which is to ask whether it, it, it's the right question and the right idea to, to improve blood supply to hibernating myocardium. But But the stitch used the wrong method to to deliver that because surgery in patients who have very poor left ventricular function does carry a a high uh, morbidity and mortality associated with it. And if we could deliver the revascularization benefit without the the mortality and morbidity cost, might we be able to give these patients a a, a benefit overall? So we're saying that in the revived
0: BASIS-2 study, we're using we're using multivessel PCI as opposed to surgery. So every, every patient will get PCI, is, is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, so that's, that's, the, okay. that's one key difference compared to, to STITCH. Yeah. The other important difference is that in order to be eligible for revived BCs 2 you have to be able to demonstrate that there is viable myocardium in the territories that are subtended by the vessels that you can treat. I see. Now, it might seem paradoxical to you given the first part of our discussion, but STITCH did not mandate viability assessment which is surprising, isn't it when which you when you
0: read the, uh, when you read the abstract, you think it must have done, but it actually right. as you say it didn't, did it?
1: There were a few patients who uh, a subset who happened to have mm. viability assessment, but that wasn't part of the protocol. so those right. are two big differences. This is a trial of revascular group who had demonstrable viability, and we're delivering the revascularization by PCI or percutaneous revascularization yeah, yeah.
0: And um, roughly how far through the trial are you? Still in the, the early phases? Or?
1: We, we are in the early phases. It's a 700-patient trial, okay. uh, and approximately 160 patients have been recruited so far. Yeah. Uh, we've now got the group of UK centres active who are going to take part in this trial, and 30 UK centres will be participating. So th- th- those are peak recruitment is expected to happen in the next year to a year and a half.
0: The follow-up is difference. going to be
1: follow-up. Follow-up is for a minimum of one year. Yes, uh, but we'll have a um, range of follow-up up to five and a half years. I see. I see. Uh, and that's that's for the for the primary endpoint. We will of course continue to follow these patients up even beyond that that primary endpoint.
0: Fantastic. Well, I think um, all of us uh, wish you luck with the trial, and we can't really uh, we really can't wait to hear the result. Of that trial, and uh, I thank you very much for your time today. Uh, once again, discussing the uh, Education in Heart paper on ischemic cardiomyopathy. The first author, I should say, is Natalia Brisegno. She's we also... one of my PhD research fellows. Fantastic. We also have Andreas Schuster and uh, Matthew Lumley, as well as yourself, uh, in the senior author position. Uh, once again, uh, DeVarco, many thanks for, for joining us on the Heart podcast today.
1: James, thank you very much.